Hello everybody and welcome to Textile Talk Podcast. My name is Gail Cowley and I'll be your host today. Joining me for this episode is Kaz Holmes, who is a British artist, author and tutor of Romani heritage, specialising in textile work with found materials. She trained in fine art and is interested in interdisciplinary projects in community and gallery settings to demonstrate the accessibility of mixed media textile processes. Her practice centres on the use of sustainable materials and themes surrounding issues of identity and place. She has researched in traditional paper and textile crafts in Japan and India, which continue to inform her practice and writing. And that was through a Winston Churchill Fellowship, Japan Foundation Fellowship and Arts Council England Professional Development Award. She collaborates with organisations and projects on curatorial and community events, including the Romani Cultural and Arts Company, as a recipient of Gypsy Maker Award, and with Craft Scotland on a collaborative exhibition called Places, Spaces, Traces, which is an exploration of the concept of place and our understanding of the importance of heritage how our inherited traditions, monuments, objects and culture can impact upon our identities and the space we call home. This touring exhibition was launched on Light Vessel 21 in Gravesend and with Anna 3 in Antwerp. Kaz's work and projects are reflected in her publications for Batsford. The most recent is Embroidering the Everyday, which was published in 2021. She's an exhibiting artist with Art Textiles Made in Britain and a member of the Embroiderers Guild UK and the Society for Embroidered Work. The stories and imageries to be found in the everyday and commonplace are a constant source of inspiration for projects and collaborations. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And I know that the majority of the listeners will already know, well, probably more than you might like about you. So um, with that being said, for the few that I know won't, um, would you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about how you first started to stitch? Okay, so stitching didn't come naturally to me. Um, I perhaps denied stitch in my life when I was a youngster, simply because I never saw it around me or thought it didn't exist around me. It was only later that I discovered that my mother knitted. Um, She gave me a cardigan for my 50th birthday, and I said, oh, that's really lovely. Where did you get that? She said, I knitted it, which was a complete surprise to me. I had no prior knowledge of those activities taking place in my home. It's as though my mother and my grandmother kind of rejected that part of their life, the the textile part. And I did find out later that my great-grandmother tatted and sent taken things around um, to people's homes because she was a Romany. So it didn't really exist in my life. I was always a painter and interested in art. My father was a sign writer. And it really was a painting that got me going. Um, 
there was an art college. We were given these old um, paintings and drawings and other art pieces that previous students had left behind that had been salvaged by the art department to form the basis of our first project, where we were asked to work on an existing piece that had been discarded. And I had this painting. We had no choice. We were just they were just placed in our our little studio spaces. And I had this painting, and I didn't know anything about media to that extent. You don't get much of a training before you go to art college. And I started to try to work over the top, and this painting kept coming through. And I wasn't didn't find it a very pleasing painting. Um, I would probably find it pleasing now, um, but at that time <laughs> it was quite new to me. Um, and um, um, in sheer, sheer desperation, I decided to rip it off the canvas and literally I ripped it and then I thought, well, now I've got to do something with it. And I would actually say that's really my strongest memory of picking up a needle as a process of repair. And I kind of that sat for a while. I started to work with paper and stitch paper. So really my my involvement with stitch was predominantly with what I would call painter's materials, canvas, paper mixed media and just using stitch as a means to break that surface and bring it back you know in that very Mm. fine art way so really that's where I started to stitch if if you like um other than stitching a button on I could just about manage that I've never been much at that time for doing very much at all with stitch Mm. so yes that's that is my strongest and I think that point where I had that haha moment that needle and thread is quite useful (laughs) <laughs> putting canvases back together yeah. <laughs> and so how did you progress from there to really coming to embrace stitch as its own art form well gradually as I went through the art college um I began to be more interested in the substrates I was working on at that time were predominantly as I said canvas or paper um but I began to look at how paper is made and I think that perhaps that started a lifelong journey into that idea of destruction and construction, which many people might identify with my practice of using fan materials. You know, it, it, I began to think about what those surfaces were and how they'd respond. And paper was much cheaper than canvas. You know, mm. students never have much money. So I utilised what was there. I recycled or re old paper. There was plenty of old paper left in the bin. So a form of paper making, not true paper making, because it was recycling paper using a mould and a decal and a frame to make the paper. And gradually I got much more interested in what this stuff was. Mm-hmm. And I received a grant from the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust to go to Japan to study Japanese paper making. And that opened up a whole new world because in Japan, paper has much longer fibres. And I could see quite cohesively how it had been used for in combination with what we would identify as textile processes. So, you know, in the stenciling um, katazome onto cloth and also woven into shifu or crumpled um, kneaded paper momigami that made kamiko, paper clothing. And that perhaps was when I started to look beyond stitching with paper or incorporate more cloth into my paper pieces because initially all of my works was with either paper I'd made or with conservation papers or wet strength papers that I could stitch together. That sounds absolutely fascinating. So 
can can you tell me how the I suppose it's it's probably quite a long explanation, but what the difference is really between the paper that we would make here, perhaps the paper that I made for my City and Girls course many years ago, and the kind of Japanese paper that you were talking about. Well, I was very fortunate in that I have a lifelong friendship with Butch the former owners of Barcham Green and Company, which were the last handmade paper companies in in this country that worked on a commercial basis. They they made watercolour for the Royal Watercolour Society well over 200 years. I mean, Maidstone was called Paper Making City. It is a town, but it was identified Mm -hmm. as that. So it was the home of of good quality handmade paper. They used to make paper for banknotes and all the conservation paper. So there are two basic principles, and the Japanese identify them as tamazuki, which is our Western tradition. I'm talking about handmade paper as opposed to commercial, and perhaps the stuff we you would recognise that many people have done in a liquidizer or pound it by with a mallet as being the Western method. And most of Western paper is made with rags, waste rags. So that's why the rag and bone man came round. So it'd be cotton or linen. Um, fibres that were broken down and really in in the mill they were broken down with giant hammers if you like and and the idea was to try to keep as much as a staple for the strength of the paper as possible and that what what's made it good for watercolour paper and that was actually made in a big vat and um, where the fibres floated and when you put the mould and decal which is the frame that holds the paper into the vat you would pull it up once shake it I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then it would be put on a felt and then another another felt on top. So it was interleaved with felt. So mm. essentially, um, that was the Western t- tradition. And the fibres were longer than you would normally find in machine-made paper, but they're nowhere near as long as the fibres you find in traditional Japanese or some other oriental paper, because it first started in China, paper-making. Um, mm-hmm. So that was adapted and you could always arguably say improved on in some areas with the Japanese as they tend to do. But um, so in Japanese paper making, they essentially, one of the main fibers they use is from um, um, the paper mulberry Mm -hmm. and they use the white inner bark and the fibers are really long. So these are stripped down and then they again are, beaten by mallet or by hand but the fibers are so much longer and then when they're suspended in the vat they are they have a um a mucilage added to them from the root of the toroyo aoi which allows the fibers these long fibers to suspend but it also allows them to adhere to each other much more strongly um so that when you've put the mold and decal in you might put it in several times as much like if anybody's made felt making you know he gradually build up the fibers mm-hmm. well that's how that's built up with japanese paper making so that mold and decal will go under several times so that they're kind of building up this web of paper um, to give it maximum strength and then the crucial difference in the making of it is each paper is laid directly on top of another with no interleaving felts. And the only thing that separates it in the traditional method are silk, uh, one silk thread. So oh. that it's slowly pressed and the fibres themselves hold themselves together better in the sheet of paper where we need the felt to stop the 
paper sticking to each other, they mm. naturally with this process hold. And the fibres in the Japanese paper are much longer. So you can see from, I try to shorten the explanation, but it, it is important to me that I explain that's why, that's the substrate again, this is how it's made. And that's what fascinated me, why the paper is so strong when you use it in your own work. How fascinating. Thank you for that. So I assume once the fibres, once the different leaves have all dried and the thread in between, then they would be separated. Yes. And, and the old way would, would be to dry them on board. So in Kuratani, mm. which is a village meaning Black Valley where I study, they'd be they'd, you would still see them drying on these huge boards tilted towards the sun. And most paper was made in winter by farmers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's tilted towards the winter sun. But by the time I was there in the mid-1980s through to the 90s, because I went back several times, they also had a, a metal stainless steel machine that you, which had a hot plate, like a hot plate, not too hot, but warm enough. So that had um, air, hot air running in it, like a big flat radiator, really. So everything mm. was flat and the paper went onto that. And, and so what would they use that paper for? I mean, it's oh. obviously very special, isn't it, when it's gone well, through that process? I yeah, it, well, it depends. I mean, and it depends. I mean, different regions specialised in different papers. So I'll give you three or four examples. So obviously, there are more traditional uses for um, Japanese painting or writing. So these would have been the more common ground papers, you know, for long fibres. But I, in the same village, they made paper products. So... Um, they might be printed on using stencils and dyes and made into wallets or um, paper bags. I mean, I'm not talking about the common paper bags we dispose of, paper bags that you can serve. I turned um, some dyed paper sheets into cushions, which I sat on for years at home with my sewing at my sewing machine. And the only thing that gave way was my stitching, not the paper. Oh my goodness! So it really is that strong. It is. It really is that strong. Um, they made farmers used to wear clothing called kamiko. Kami means um, paper, and kamiko comes from kimono. Kimono means thing to wear, so it's paper thing to wear. Kamiko, and they used to wear that in, in um, make this paper clothing. Sometimes it was treated with shellac or type of shellac. And the priests adopted that as a simple form of Shinto priests, as a simple form of clothing to 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 state about their simplicity and and that and and relationship to the life life and world around them. Mm. So and and it's and some paper was made with the fibers long um, aligned all in one let in one way, and that would be cut to make um, thin strips continuous strip which would be spun to make shifu which is woven paper cloth so, so how I mean when you talk about clothing I mean how could they wash them or how could they clean them might be more specific well that woven paper cloth when shifu is made it's washed up to 10 times before it's sold it's after it's woven mm. paper I mean if we consider the relationship between wool or cotton to make clothing and paper essentially what they've done is actually just added another process they've made the sheet of paper out of these long fibers instead of putting them straight into to, to spinning mm. but unlike a staple like wool or cotton where you might twist it or, or twine it particularly with wool you might twine uh, uh, forgive me anybody who does work with weaving and wool because I'm not trained in that area but you actually mm. twine 
your staples together to produce your strand. That's my understanding. So mm. you might have three ply, four ply, you know, when we when we knit. With paper, it's just a single strand twisted very tightly. And uh, if it's just used as a string, it's just called koyori. Mm-hmm. So I own a few pieces of this precious woven cloth, tiny fragments, because only eight people were left in Japan making it when I studied. Goodness. Yeah. So it's very special. And very strong. Yes. Yeah. That I'm, I'm sure. And I imagine very expensive because it obviously has a huge amount of time put into it. Mm-hmm. How yes, fascinating. It Maybe that gives you that foundation that for me, the world of paper and the world of text, what we would recognize as cloth are not distinctly, they're intertwined. They're not separate identities for me. They are just surfaces that respond in different ways and have a different feel to them so some might be more resistant to being flexible than others mm-hmm. and then you but then you choose from that and because I use found materials rather than um, evolve my own from particular specialist materials that adds another element into the un, what I call the unknowing side of my work I like the fact that wherever I find a material it will come with its own history and it, which will suggest what direction it might want me to take it and I have to learn how to work with it do you do you think that perhaps not having uh, that strong textile background from an early age and being coming to it more from the art and the paper making side has actually improved your practice perhaps because you don't have the same thoughts about what should go together what should work you've actually experimented with what you know with what you already know and that has brought out a completely different process for you i i think you used the term improved my practice i'm going to um say it made what i did a little bit different as an norfolk expression to do different um because i i think that i, I you know i was in awe when i worked did workshops with the Embroiderers Guild. It's about utilising your knowledge and pushing it a different way. So I have a, I have um, a great respect for people who who can make a beautiful traditional quilt and use the stitch, stitch and patterns in the way that they do, or somebody who works with gold work. It's about understanding what you want to do with it. So I would say that because I had a grounding in fine art and drawing, um, but also I think it's to do with my cultural background. Um, I come from a working class family and I just used what I had around me because we didn't have much around us. I'd use my father's, he was a painter and decorator. So I'd use rolls of paper that he had left over and some of his old match pots and things like that to paint with because that was available to me. And I'd only get stuff for birthdays and Christmases because there wasn't the spare money just to go out and buy stuff. So, you know, my sketchbooks or drawing stuff would come at times a year that I wanted them or, you know, Mm -hmm. to use. Um, So it's, but it's also, I I didn't know if I knew it at the time, but I think it was embedded in me by my grandmother and my great grandmother, they're Romani. So the idea of reusing what you have, perhaps it always been in my background and I maybe didn't, realize that as a child but even when I visited my grandmother she always had you know there was always a vegetable garden um dad granddad who married in went out with her family to to, to, toting goods to door to door yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so she would have 
odd ceramics because they're that he were either cracked or that on but be- still beautiful where they traded or bought things in, in the markets that she wouldn't allow him to break up because often they couldn't afford to store all of the stuff but she'd always pick out th- some things that she liked to have in her home because she still valued them even if they had a crack in them because they looked lovely so um you know it it's about utilising what's there, but she put all her energy into cooking. I'm certainly no cook. <laughs> but, but she, she, you know, I, I kind and but I knew she had this. I, I only found out latently she had those skills as a child from her grand, from her mother. But I think it was about that time she just pushed away from it, that traditional role, that more traditional role of working in textiles. Mm, yeah, and and obviously, crafts over the years have gone up and down. So some crafts, I mean, I can remember you know, the phase on macrame, and now it's back again. They're very cyclic, aren't they? Yeah, and I think when you talk about that, we, we, you know, there's this kind of thing about craft and art. All good artists need to be good craftspeople. What I mean by that, they need to develop a relationship and understanding of how they want the materials to work. And, and what they may want to do with them. And I'm using the word may because it's also that willingness to step into uncertain territory and experiment that I think is the key division. Experiment. I'm not saying that people don't experiment with colour or, or composition when they're in the craft, but it's also to do with functionality and doing doing something that's about expressing an idea as opposed to it being a thing in itself. Mm. I mean, these are broad definitions and, you know, please don't, you know, it's just me still trying to get to grips with this whole debate about art and craft. But, but I, you know, and I think some painters who just continue to do the same thing all the time and getting the same results are in the same position as most, a lot of people who might position themselves as craftspeople. And there's no right or wrong about being either or. It's about what your intent is with the work that perhaps defines you as an artist. You know, what is your intent? And it certainly is about expressing the things that I care about in the world around me or about the materials itself, um, as opposed to thinking about making a product. I'm always thinking about what am I going to do, you know, how I'm gonna how am I going to investigate what's important to me and how are those materials going to help me discover what's what that is. Mm. As opposed to saying, I am going to make, it's going to be, what am I going to discover through asking the questions about my own practice? Well, I, I know from our students that once, and, and obviously from myself, that once you actually start to put up those end results, uh, in a way you've erected a barrier because you've then limited what you're going to do and how you're going to get there. If you can look on it far more experimentally, um, then I think that's where some of the really innovative work tends to get done. Yeah, and it's I've never it's not easy. I've I have I've spent 40 years of doing stuff that I don't find easy. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. challenging. There are days I kind of particularly now, as you know, my circumstances have changed. I'm working mm. a lot more from home because my partner had a stroke. It's much more challenging. Um, I'm not out there in the world as much as I would be able to normally stimulated by that interaction with other people in a studio um but it can be rewarding and and when does when things start to appear and you begin to understand what you might be doing with the thing that you're investigating it can lead to other development 
But I am notorious for saying that one of the biggest groundings I have uh, is also the idea of looking and drawing. For me, it's the foundation. You know, that's what I started to do very early on as a child. And it's the thread that's run through all of my work. It may not always be apparent in my outcomes that people, in, in the fact that they're cloth and stitch, but I always argue that what I'm doing is I'm just using the nature of those materials to express what I understand about looking and drawing. And and how much, when you're actually creating a piece, how much planning do you actually put in beforehand or, or does everything develop organically as you move along? They go side by side. I don't pre... I don't pre-plan because I, you know, that idea of destroying that canvas and investigating what material does has stayed with me. I have mm. endless research folders from early on, and I still keep them. Several different types of sketchbooks. Some are basically what I call a reflective practice. So when I'm working on something, I will stick things in. I'll make notes. I'll talk about what I've seen. Um, I'll, I'll maybe do some sampling, not necessarily that that piece is going to look like that, but just to get to grips with what the materials can do or something I might have discovered. You know, the best things often are things you discover as happy accidents, as people might call them. You know, um, I think it was Picasso said, all artists make mistakes, but great artists know which ones to keep. <laughs> That's very <laughs> true. <laughs> you know, so that whole idea that something might happen, you think actually there's room in developing that with what prior knowledge I have and what I might discover. So I'm not I'm not saying they're going to be groundbreaking things you're going to make the next because you're always building on on what you know, but it's about keeping that moving. And I don't I always have several things I'm working on at the same time. So that if I get stuck on one, I can park it. And then can go back to it for afresh. I think that's actually a really good uh, practice for uh, something we often suggest to our students that because you can get very fixated on one element of something that's not perhaps going very well. Sometimes the best thing you can do, I think, is walk away and uh, and perhaps you know turn your attention to I don't know, off the top of my head, knitting a pair of socks. And then return to it after you've had a little bit of yeah. thought. And also sometimes, you know, it's not always good to work. I mean, mm. it's harder for me because I try to, I try to, I'm not saying it's harder for me than anyone else, but I recognise how hard it can be now that I'm in a role that, I mean, obviously I was working and teaching, but teaching is always about that cross exchange of information. Now that I'm caring um, it's harder to carve out those pockets of time to develop my own practice as well as keep up with all the additional tasks that lovely Derek used to do. And, you know, I'm mm. painting a window at the moment because it needs doing. Um, but while I'm painting that window, ideas infuse in my head. When I'm going out on my hours walk or cycle, which I try to do, I'm never an hour, I'm never more than 15 minutes away from home, so I'm not abandoning him. I can get home at any time, but I do know I need to keep myself well and fit. Yeah. So being out in the world in the, in every day, I, I I like to be outside. That's always been something I want to do. So I go out for a walk or a cycle every day. And um, but that's sometimes where it when you're having this time out of that space you normally work that you allow the ideas to seep through. You might see something on your walk or you've got that quiet space that you often need 
You may not recognize you need it, but that's sometimes when things spark up in my mind. Yes, no, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that the moment, if you can, just accept that you might not come to whatever answer you're looking for at that moment, you need to walk away and come back. And I do think because a lot of textile art is very, it's obviously very time consuming. We spend a lot of time working on different elements of it. Then you can get very fixated on one element Sometimes when you back off and you look at that element as part of the whole, it doesn't seem anywhere near as bad as it did when you were just concentrating on it. Yeah, and and I'm not against. I mean, I've I've often gone through a whole making nearly the whole thing and then pulling a whole section out of it, rather like a painter will paint over a piece. And I think that's what sometimes people might fear doing because they've invested time. And, mm. and I think, well, I've, that's my valuable time and I can't do that. Well, if it's not working, you haven't lost time. You've gained understanding. Yes, um, but I, I do. I absolutely agree with you that people are very unwilling to do that. They see it as, well, perhaps a, a bit of a failure. Um, they also see it as a loss of time, maybe a loss of, of money, because, of course, if you're abandoning something that you've uh, – paid for the materials for so I think there are all sorts of reasons why people don't want to do that but I agree with you you know it is experiential learning well, well there is a little oriental it might be Chinese or Japanese it's you know the, the, the interchange between cultural stories between those two cultures is phenomenal um, and I'm probably going to mistell it here but my memory of the story is is that a painter was asked to create um, a painting of the emperor's favourite horses. And he went away for a year and a day and returned later. And he came with this beautiful ink drawing of the emperor's horses that captured the character in the flow of the horse and presented the emperor with his bill. And when he presented the emperor with his bill, the emperor's eyes raised at the bill and said, but that's only one drawing. And then the painter clapped his hands three times and in came a hundred workers, each carrying 100 paintings. And he said, this is all that I've done in order to achieve that. And I think, mm. you know, when people also raise a question about the value of things that are handmade, and we all know that often you'll see a price of a painting, yet we fight really hard to achieve a, even a reasonable return for our work as textile artists, that, that it is the work that's unseen has enabled you to make the work that people think is as, of, as effortless. It's very true. Um, and I think that sometimes people see, you know, beautiful sketchbooks, perhaps that someone has put online. They look at them, they feel really despondent because they think, well, I'll never produce anything like that. Uh, but in actual fact, many of those things are, are the product of a, a huge amount of other work that has come together. Um, I think, and it's one of those anomalies, isn't it, that unless you actually do some form of textile art yourself, you don't appreciate the work that's gone into it. Well, that but, would go for any practice, whether you're yeah. a dancer, a musician, a gardener, to, to achieve your vision. I'm not talking about testing it that it's 
it's somebody else's idea of what's good. It's to do what you want to do with your materials takes an awful lot of work. You know, mm. I've got to the stage, I don't really care what other people think about work. <laughs> well, just well, do it. You. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the I'm hard, I'm a harsh enough critic of my own work, so I don't need anybody else to tell me. <laughs> no, well done you. That is actually, I think, one of the the probably the best piece of advice that you could give to anyone. You I, have... I don't think I was always like that. But, you know, <laughs> I've just got so much going on in my life recently, but it's that's been since that's been for the last 10, 15 years. I thought I've just got to do what I need to do. Yeah. So how do you go on, Kaz, if you take um I mean, do you take commissions? And and if so, how how does that sort of ethos play into the commission process? I do take commissions. They find their way to me. Um, I'm not very, I'm, I'm, I, I think I am good at communicating. I'm good at um, knowing what works for me. I have an online it, it, uh, website, which has a shop page, which I update now and again, which has mostly my smaller works on. Um, and I do have some pieces on the sh- um Saatchi website I've never actually sold anything directly from there but um, a lot of people have seen what I've done and I've asked would I do or I like that piece of work would you prepare to sell it you know I tend not to post my bigger pieces work up and say they're for sale um, but they are they're up there and if people are interested they can contact me so I've worked on several commissions I did one um, during the pandemic for a pastor um mm-hmm. um um and he he wanted to base the piece on um the 20 i don't know if it's a 23rd psalm i'd need to double check but anyway it was it was to do with a piece of religious text and it, and it, it was a quite a large piece and a large commission i was thrilled to get it during the pandemic mm. i can tell you it certainly helped at the early stages um and sent me some um, pieces of material that's how I like to work so a lot of times when I'm working on a commission I ask people if they're prepared to send me either photocopies or some pieces of cloth or material that they would like me to consider to be incorporated mm. um, and but usually I'm I'm left you know they give me an idea of the scale and the cost so if you know or maybe where they want to hang up but that, that I'm left to their work on it and I'll send them an update but I don't do a pre-designed drawing because it will never turn out that way because as I'm working, I hear the voice of that person and the person they want to, to give gift it to or remember it, remember, mm-hmm. um, come through. Um, touch wood, um, I, I don't think I've ever had anyone say, well, this isn't what I expected. <laughs> thrilled, but, you know. I, I think, think that's uh, all, uh, that's always a worry, isn't it, when you're working to commission? This wasn't what I wanted. Yeah, but um, I think it's because I'm quite clear that you're entering in dialogue with me and you've seen something you like in my work that, has asked, that you've asked asked about to be in the as, as part of the commissioning process and for me to be able to have that response to your commission I still need to build in a bit of freedom about how I might respond to the materials you've given me sensitively I'm not just mm. going to just take them and put them together but thinking about what we've discussed and so that it becomes a gift back to them if you like rather than matching that furniture that's quite yes. a different commission to because some corporate type commissions can be much more to do 
Oh, I'm not. I'm not talking about high-end corporate commissions. I mean, Alice Kettle's just had a fabulous exhibition in London with her, with her corporate part, partners, mm. where it's about again that expression of her ideas, which they were really interested in. Um, but you can buy um, commissioned work that perhaps works better with your furnishing because you're much more interested in the design of your space. Let, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different way of working. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't work in that way. I'm not a designer. I'm an artist. So uh, you obviously were mentioning there the pandemic, um, and when I've spoken to people about that that time since I think um, many artists and and craftspeople during that time either found it an absolute nightmare and I know an awful lot of the population did or they found it actually very helpful because it gave them a lot of time to concentrate on perhaps developing new things new ideas how did you find that period for you mixture of both um, initially, the first few months, first two or three months was quite really hard because I would say it was hard for any everybody, regardless of what job you did, if you're a freelancer, to see the world that you understood, your work dry up, your, um, you, you know, your, everything deferred till some indefinable moment in the future. You, you can... Um, working in place I mean I did a lot of workshops and they were all mm. over the world and they were cancelled there and then there was no choice you yeah. know yeah so that that meant income dried up um, and I I had a pattern of life where I worked away and then came back and suddenly it all changed so the first two two three weeks to a month it was just fight or flight you know I just had to email my partners get things sorted I went out for a walk just to um, calm you know calm myself if yeah. you like because although that it was quieter that I think it was a very tumultuous time for everybody suddenly to have the world that you're familiar with withdrawn from you oh absolutely yeah, yeah. You know. I, I think we were all actually particularly during the, that first lockdown we were all scared weren't we we were seeing on the news every day of what this disease might do what uh, yeah. you know what the, the repercussions might be both obviously physically um on people ourselves people we know and also you know from a financial point of view for the country it was a really scary time yeah um and so then gradually things started to ease my adult education center even when it came back after april we were on zoom probably before the colleges were Mm -hmm. um, um, and um, students were a bit reluctant to begin with. I did a couple of test sessions to begin with over the Easter break, and um, then, you know, and I was only working with a phone and a tablet because my equipment here wasn't set up for that then. I, my PC would, wouldn't have connected. Up, I was up two floors, so I only had Wi-Fi. It wasn't hardwired in, so I couldn't rely on that I had to do it on my phone and a tablet so, yeah. so you know everything for everybody was until things sorted out was ad hoc, a little bit had up mm. but but I set up a group called what we miss what we value which you can find on my Facebook page it's a closed group but I I, I set up projects with them which anybody can look at and have a go at doing um, there's no I, I, there's no income stream from that um, I set it up because I felt it was in relevant for connection between artists and makers and enthusiasts and people who are, who were my friends, if you like, who I knew. So 
but I, I made it a closed group after a few after about a few weeks because the membership numbers were just getting too big for me to really feel it was doing what it needed to do. Yeah, but it's sort of still running. But that this this page I have on my website, people can look at the project, and if they want to do it, they can do it or not. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was I did a lot of things voluntarily online because I felt. Um, I'd, I'd start. I'd, I thought I might stitch scrubs, but I thought going back to my earlier story, I thought, you know, there's no point. What point me stitching scrubs because it would take me forever. I can, I can, I can, I can make improvised clothing. Mm. You know, I've done that. I can, I can improvise things. But following a pattern after about two, which would take me all day until I got more confident with it, thought that that's not the best thing I can do. So I started to do some things that people could, could engage with for mental well-being invited by Westine College to do which I did for them gratis and um, how to work with a sketchbook just some Mm -hmm. gentle things that help my community if you like that's really but in doing that I also began to hone my skills which thank heavens I did because I'm able to balance a little bit of my practice now um you know, I'd love to be out there in workshops, but I haven't, I can't stay away overnight at the moment. So that's really hit a lot of my practice. Yeah. Um, but I am doing some work overseas by working online with invited partners. And that's one of the things I've always been clear about. I've worked with partners that I already had in the past, because for me, it was about supporting them as well as supporting me rather than running my own workshops independently. Mm. Um, so I've always worked 40 years. I spent working with partnerships and I felt that was very relevant. Yeah. Uh, but also it was about that trust you have with those partners so that now I'm working more online. I'm not doing as anywhere near the level and the amount of teaching I used to do before my partner had his stroke. But I'm doing enough um, that I can manage and on the knowledge that I'm quite clear that um, he has to be my priority. And if I have to stop, we just catch up some other time. And people have been incredibly flexible. And I think that's what I gained from the pandemic, you know, that resilience and the ability to learn from not just the practical things, you know, I'm a whole world away from where I was online, although I was pretty reasonably confident, but now Hmm. um but also being able to recognize that there are are different ways for working I mean even before we knew about the pandemic whenever I went into a workshop because I had worked for a long time and still do within the care services with hospitals with mental health I was very careful at the beginning of any workshop to say I'm here to share my skills with you and for you to take the get the best out of this I want you to be mindful of how you are and how you're feeling so if at any time you need to step out just let me know and step out because Mm -hmm. you don't know how you are going to respond you might have something going on in your life and those are things that people may not feel comfortable talking about and we all get we're all getting old you know I, I, I kind of just discussed that because I think that in order for us to be creative we also do be need to be mindful of us as a whole person and if you, you're trying to work through and you've got a steaming headache, well, they don't work through. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and you'll never produce your best work in those circumstances. So it's just better, I think, to 
admit that you're not 100%, step away for that moment. Then when you go back to it, you'll be renewed, refreshed, and hopefully ready to continue with that creative process. Yeah. And and I don't need to give people permission to do that, but expressing that in a workshop or any situation where I'm working in collaboration with another person and being direct about it gives people the space to be able to do that for themselves because they might feel they can't do that. It does because I think a lot of us are still certainly people of my age, um, older, are still sort of very much of the mindset that you know, this is this is a, a, a formal learning environment and, you know, you've paid and you've turned up and, and you've taken a place and you have to stay there and you have to get the most out of it and do the best you can. And, and unfortunately, putting those constraints on yourself often means you do the opposite. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, I, you know, I've, I've thrived within that teaching and learning environment because, you know, the teacher learns. The teacher mm. learns by observation, body language. Not, that doesn't mean I'm out there spying on people, but that's what I actually miss about being in place. You know, I try to talk when I'm teaching here in my studio space. I talk about removing that screen. So it's as though they're looking at a window, but it's still there, you know, it's, mm. but it, it, it's try to making it as, as informal because um, that's what Zoom is as opposed to pre-recorded. It's about that informal connection you have with students in a workshop where you can keep a weather eye on what they're doing, which means you're still working, but knowing when to step back and just, look, she looks okay. I'm going to walk past because sometimes People don't want you saying, are you okay? You, they just need to get on with what they're doing. Yeah. You learn those skills when you're in a workshop, but also that exchange and honouring the student's own experience in the workshop, which is equally important because, you know, I'm, I'm not daft. People come to my workshops who've got incredible skills. They may be artists in their own right. I don't know mm. what their background is sometimes. Sometimes I do. And when I, you know, I remember one of my first major workshops was in Germany and the people who'd signed up, I looked at the list and I thought, my God, these are my colleagues. That that, that was, you know, when you say, I always think I enter a workshop, it doesn't matter what level of experience, with a bit of stage fright anyway, because you've got to perform yourself as a teacher and artist. So, Mm. you know, it's a two-way process. I I mean, Mm. I'm confident in my own skills, but I'm also human. So, you know, anything that happens in a workshop happens in a workshop and people, you know, get, get as close as they can to my practice as part of that process. And I think the process for teaching has changed over the years. Um, I had a a, a wonderful professor when I was doing my, well, my master's and my PhD, actually, Um, Andrew Sattville. He's he's actually sadly passed away this last couple of weeks. But he always used to say, we've moved away from the sage on the stage to being the guide at the side. And I think it's a, a very true way of of actually um, portraying how teaching has changed because it's no longer a case of just getting up there and talking at people and expecting them to do exactly what you say, is it? It doesn't work like that now. No, it doesn't. No. Um, the next thing, if I if I could, um, is to ask you about your new role as a carer. I know that um, obviously you've touched on it on a couple of occasions, but it would be really interesting if you could um, just tell our listeners something about it, how how it's affected you, um, 
and how you've managed to keep working really at the same time because I know it must be both well obviously challenging um, but rewarding as well and I also know it's an experience that many of the people that listen to that will 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 have in their own lives well I I, I think in to such an extent that I've even I think you probably received the email and it says artist carer now yes yes so, yeah um I, I don't I'm not over, I try not to over reveal the day-to-day life but I want mm. to make that very present in my practice because I I become you know with over I think it's 11 million carers in this country you're either doing certain level of care um it's not it's not a a tribe or a group that I would have chosen to belong to. But at some point, we are all carers, whether you're you're caring for children, you might be caring for older parents, even if it's just going for shopping, to a greater or level or lesser extent. We all we all have a caring role, you know, mm. you know, we all pick up those those things on a day-to-day basis, whether you're preparing food for someone in your family, you know, or or you're I mean Derek used to go and paint the windows every two or three years he's caring for the house and making certain we've got a safe place to live so so as far as I'm concerned care that care but being a carer means there are other elements to that role um which I've had to learn quite quickly and often it's been incredibly difficult and the, some of the difficult things are the minefield of paperwork and organisations which because of so many things being devolved from social services to charities, you're feeling, I mean, at the first first few weeks Derek was home and all, I was I found it really hard just managing day to day because it, he was so much more dependent then, really dependent, mm. and also agencies coming in paperwork to be filled out I was just overwhelmed with all of this new language the new skill set that was was actually being just off loaded on me so very very quickly um, yes. so that 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 was quite ch- I mean very I her scare as scary as those first weeks of the pandemic work was that, that didn't touch the edges compared to my first few weeks of Derek being home Yes. Yeah. No, I, I I mean, as somebody that's cared for not a partner, but both parents, I do know exactly what you mean. And, and as you say, sort of the, the actual day to day hands on caring is one thing, but all of the organization and the paperwork and the frustration that goes along with that is quite another. It is quite, it is quite another. So I'm going to just park that and just talk about a little bit now about, the, I want to say pros and cons, but um, I've learned a lot about myself. I mean, I talk about the fact that we are both stroke survivors because we talk about stroke survivors, and I think it's important that we do that. But it actually impacts everybody around the person who has had a stroke or has a heart condition or any other illness. Mm. Um, and But there are other things that, you know, I, I'm sitting in a home that he's created. Um, I'm I, The studio I work in, is the, he was putting the window in um three or four days before he had his stroke you know right yeah yeah um, and that was finished mm-hmm. um so I I and 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 again during the pandemic I was fortunate we had this house with a garden it's only a little house but it's my my home from home it's a safe place to be if you like where many mm-hmm. people don't have didn't have that 
you know, they were in a flat with children and no gardens. Oh, so, absolutely, yeah. You know, and, and, and so although I find it tough, I'm still we're ma- we are managing, you know, he built an extension a few years ago and that's where his bed is downstairs. So he can access the garden. He walks with a stick, so he can access mm. the garden, get 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 around reasonably okay. He's not able to to work. His left side has gone. So that means I'm doing a lot of things during the day, like cooking, um, assisting him when he needs it. Mm. Um, learning to step away when he doesn't that's really an important lesson that's, to learn. <laughs> that's difficult isn't it <laughs> you know sometimes it, it's harder to do than you think because you're just looking and thinking oh no you know but if he has to fall he has to fall it's un, it's an unfortunate part of being slightly mobile when you've had a stroke mm. but so it's that managing how I interact with him he's been phenomenal he you know he really has but He's not going to be climbing ladders or painting or doing the stuff he does anytime soon, if if at all. But the fact he's mobile was a miracle because mm-hmm. I didn't even think he'd get to that stage. It was devastating what happened to him. Mm-hmm. You know, no mobility, no virtually no vision. So you know that's that. So there's obviously been a huge improvement from the initial stroke. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's still a, a, it's still a profound stroke, but. You know, we didn't think he'd survive, to be quite frank. Yes. Um, So I've learned to adapt and work around my new life, our new life. Hmm. Um, I was, and I will admit, thinking about taking on less work before the pandemic. I felt I was in that position. I could do that and concentrate more on my work and also just continue to work for some of the organizations I wanted to, because I'm getting, you know, I'm in my 60s, you get to a point where you've got to focus on what's right for you. And if you can afford to do it, um, this wouldn't have been the way I'd chosen to do it again. No, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, but, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Um, so, 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 but I've, it's taught me a lot about myself. I do a lot more gardening um, and that's influenced how it's influenced a lot of my new work as well. This new relationship mm. I have with the house, with Derek and the garden has influenced some of the things I've been working on for forthcoming exhibitions about our interaction between brain, mind and body and the outer world. So it's still evolving. It's still raw work. And I'm often showing some of these new, I mean, I'll be showing some of the first responses to that at the knitting and stitching show mm-hmm. um, in um October with art textiles made in Britain and so that's the other piece about being adaptive if you're honest with your partners I have been absolutely overwhelmed and surprised by the kindness of people yes I mean I have I have an exhibition in Scotland at the moment which I cannot go to but we have worked via Zoom. We've built a huge program, got funding for it to support the local community. Schools have responded. The Cost Scottish Pot has responded. Mm. And, and whilst I would love to be there, the kindest thing that the organiser, um, Claire, had said about her involvement with me, she said, this wouldn't have been possible without you and your involvement. And this is just a testimony to what can be done and what we have learned and, and what skills can evolve from not necessarily having to be in that place. And they have come through both the pandemic and my situation. Mm -hmm. 
And I have a great deal more respect for how we might be able to reach out to communities who otherwise might not be able to get to places because of restrictions on their lives, such as I have. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, so much more has gone online. And obviously, the pandemic has only hastened that process, hasn't it? And I think some people complain and say, you know, well, it was so much better when you could go to a shop and see a selection of things when you could go to a gallery and see a, 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 a an exhibition but there are upsides to it as well and and obviously that that's very much one of them yeah but I think both can coexist we yet to find the balance I'd be mm. the last to say I mean I'm doing my first workshop in place since last year since August last year at West Dean in in September um it's one of the things I've managed to keep going um, and I want to because I, I, you know, it's a lovely place to work. I'm not saying all my other partners I love working with and they know that, you know, there's no no doubt about that. But they're totally understanding. Um, and it's really, really hard. You know, to all the carers out, out there, um, my hat goes off to you because I've I've only been doing it for two years. I know people have been doing it for far longer. But just to get a night away is just uh, so hard that I can't work away. I mean, then Derek's, mm. Derek's brother is flying over um, so I can get away for five days. This is if I, I try to do one thing a year where I'm in a studio with people because I, I actually need that for my intellectual well-being, not just my physical well-being and my mental well-being. I need that intellectual side of my work to keep going. And to be with people who will challenge me with what they do and how they respond to a workshop situation. I've thrived on that. And that that's the thing I actually miss the most is being in place with people. Yes. And that intellectual stimulation that comes along with that. Mm. I can completely understand that. And I'm so glad that you've managed to find a way through because it must have been incredibly difficult. Yeah, well, it's it's an ongo- it's ongoing. I'm not mm. I'm not going to say it, you know when people say um, how's it improving. It's it's going to be ongoing. It's not it's not something that you can give a timeline to. No, you know, I'm sure mm. timelines okay. can work in two ways. So, you know, mm. I'm just I'm just accepting every day I have now rather than mm. you know I'm planned for the future. I've got projects planned in the future, but as I said, I mean, like with art textiles made in Britain, my group. I've done a lot of some of the background work, but they have been incredibly supportive and understanding and still want me to be part of the group yeah. um, because we are a small group and we we are a supportive group. So, And mm-hmm. um, I've managed to get some cover so I can help to hang and ha- hopefully go to the knitting and stitching show mm-hmm. in Ali Pali. I can't go to Harrogate, but I can get to Ali Pali because that, again, is a place where, you know, I, uh, you know those treats if you like of going to an exhibition a few and far oh, between there absolutely and you know being able to look at all the obviously some of the work that's been done but some of the things that are for sale it's just a, a lovely place anyone that's that's interested or working within textiles it's just a really lovely place to go yeah it is it is and I'm so looking forward to it you know yeah oh yeah um, I'm sure I'm sure so is there, obviously, I know that you've talked about a, a couple of things that come next, but is there anything else? I know that you're quite a prolific author. Are there any books coming up or what's on the horizon? All I can say at the moment is I am doing some writing for various projects, but I can't 
talk any more about that at the moment. Okay. Um, I, I've always kind of until uh, anything until any publication or writing that I've been doing has gone to bed, if you like, has been accepted or put to bed, then I start talking about it. Because again, it's to do with my current situation. I don't know if I'm, mm. I'm writing um, or doing a project until it's ready to be launched. I don't feel comfortable talking about it in case it doesn't happen. Yes. Yeah. yeah, And I think that is the wariness that came from the pandemic because I, you know, it took as much time from, it took, you know, it's a lot of hard work. I'm picking all of that and then rebooking and then I'm picking again that Mm. now I don't kind of until things have all confirmed. I don't think it's in place. However, I can talk about two projects three projects I'm working on at the moment, which is um, the exhibition Places, Spaces, Traces is touring. It goes to Queen Street Gallery in Neath um, in October, the end of October, early November. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's currently on show at the Barony Centre with Craft Town Scotland until the 7th of October. All this information is on my, on my website anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is... This is an exhibition um, that started um, and it start was supposed to start at Antwerp in 220, uh, but it actually was de- um, start was exhibited in 221 because of the pandemic um, and was first filmed at LV21, which is a light vessel um, mm-hmm. in the River Medway. So this has been ongoing for the last two years and different communities have responded to it. So each iteration of it has changed the shipping forecast which is the main exhibit of my work which is the core exhibit in in the exhibition remains the same but the other exhibits are a response to that in very much the same way it's all to do with about the migrant community or our sense of place where we think we belong and so that your sense of who you are and what you do can change according to the situation and environment you're in mm-hmm. yeah that I believe that yeah. strongly yeah you know, sure. your core who you are is still there but you 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 change as you go through life what you were doing a few years ago might mean something else now oh you so, do absolutely yes yeah so that that is touring um I'm working on a project called storytellers with Kent Creative, um, and that's um, an exhibition of various artists, painters, printmakers, filmmakers. I think I'm the only textile artist, and they've identified people who use the power of storytelling in in brackets, if you like, communicate an experience or a story through their work, and that will be at the Beanie, which is in Canterbury, um, from December. I'm very pleased to have been part of that. There is a little video, again, the links are on my pages, mm-hmm. um, that tells you a little bit about my that work. Um, and I've also been engaged by the Romany Cultural and Crafts Company for their celebration of um, the 10th year of the com- um, Romany Cultural and Craft Company Gypsy Maker Project. I was involved with Gypsy Maker 4, which toured, but was grounded because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they will be showing past Gypsy Makers 
work plus new works commissioned by us. And I'm recycling some old work into new work because a lot of my projects is about recycling a lot of my old work into new work, which seems apt because it's about repairing. A lot of the work I'm doing is about repair. There's a connection there with Derek's brain and our lives, you know, the idea of reparation. Yes. And then the final thing is, as I said earlier on, the um, Illuminate with the art textiles made in Britain. So, Kaz, it, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you're a very busy lady and I really appreciate that you've taken the time out of your day to speak um, to me and obviously to the listeners about this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're very welcome. And it's been a pleasure.